You know, Mike shared last week about a message about building a family of character and courage. And he talked about Joshua's call to the Israelites. And he said that this day you must choose who you're going to follow. This bold call from Joshua. And then Mike also shared about the tragedy that happened just a couple generations removed. In Judges chapter 2, we see it. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And Mike called this the crisis that we must avoid. Well, Brooke and I today, we're going to go dig a little bit deeper into that. And we are going to talk about building up generations of righteousness and the crisis at hand. Um, So we're kind of playing off Mike's message. But, you know, in order for us to do this effectively, I think we have to take a look back um, into what generations have looked like in in America. Um, And we see this chart. We see the seniors. um, We see the builders. We see the boomers, which I I would say that a lot of the people in this this congregation are boomers. Um, We see the busters, um, or as they call them, Generation X. And finally, the generation that is upon us is the millennials, or Generation Y, um, that were born after 1984. And one of Brooke and I's favorite authors is Tim Elmore. Um, he's a doctor, so that makes him important. Um, but uh, he wrote a couple books about this generation, and he dedicates his whole life to pouring in and growing leaders from this Generation Y, because he believes in them. And he actually breaks up Generation Y into two separate groups. And I'll show you there that he, he thinks that the first half is Generation Y, and the last half is this thing called Generation IY, which is born out of the technology, the iPad, the iPod, the iMac, the i-whatever-you-want-to-put-after-that, um, and this technology that has come. And I want to show you a, a chart that kind of lays out the differences. You, you know, these are his words, not mine, so don't throw stones at me, please. Um, but, uh, hello. Um, there it is. So you can kind of see the differences in Generation Y and Generation IY. Uh, obviously, you see the date. The Generation IY is was born after 1992. Um, the, the things that I want to highlight, technology is a tool for the first half of this generation. They see it as a means to an end to get to something. Well, the last half of this generation sees it literally as an extension of who they are. It's an appendage of themselves. And you know this to be true if you've seen a kid in a restaurant or in a car or anywhere else with the iPad playing a game. They know how to do more stuff on that thing than we do. And it's an extension of themselves. We see students, uh, Brooke and I see this all the time, that are sleep deprived because they sleep with their iPhones under their pillow. And every time it buzzes, they're like, oh, what is that? And they, they, they look at it. And I really think that if I, the I and iPhone, was a literal I and the phone stayed on their face, they would like it more because they wouldn't have to remember to grab it when they walked out of the house. It would be a part of themselves. But, you know, the students aren't the only ones that are guilty of this. Adults, we are just as bad. And I know Brooke is shaking her head right now because she's like, that's you. Because I have a problem with my phone always being attached to me and always checking and it is a, is a problem with our culture, this I culture that we live in. The last thing I want to I highlight is the last one. Accelerated growth in the first half of the generation. And now we're seeing a postponed maturity. And I think really from the video, we see a lot of that has to do with how we are treating you know, competition. We are treating this, this self-esteem that we want to build up. And in the end, we're kind of postponing maturity in that. And Dr. Elmore has written another book, and it's called Artificial 
maturity. And the content has kind of confirmed what Wade and I and what Caleb and Amanda have seen within our ministry. And he talks about how authentic maturity is kind of this all-encompassing idea that involves a person's intellect, their um, social, their physical, um, their spiritual, all those aspects of their lives. And when all of those are kind of equal and balanced, then they're considered authentically mature. However, on the flip side, if they are imbalanced and maybe one is advanced in one area but delayed in another, then that's where we talk about artificial maturity. And while authentic maturity does still exist today, um, we've actually seen it in several of our students, and it's such a blessing to witness. It is rare. And as believers, our desire should be that our young people, as believers in Jesus Christ, should be the ones that are leading in the trenches. They should be the ones who are the most authentically mature in all of the nations. And um, what's happening is, just like Wade was talking about, due to all the technology that we have, all this access to information, is we had a, a lot of cognitively advanced students, but then when it comes to actual life experiences, they're delayed. And so they're being introduced and overexposed to information far before they should be, and then underexposed to life experiences a lot later than they actually should be. And it's funny because in the Greek language, there are actually two words used um, for the one English word, no. And the first word is gnosko. And what that means is to just be introduced to, to be acquainted with some type of information. And then the second word, oida, is actually talking about fully understanding information given based on actual life experiences. I want to I share a little story of the really only major fight that Brooke and I had while we were dating and engaged. Um, and, you know, Brooke loves to dance. She, she always, she, in college, she went dancing all the time. I am what's considered a wedding dancer, where I have no skill whatsoever, but I have the most fun with it that I possibly can. It's embarrassing. Um, but, you know, because I wanted to show that I was listening to my wife, and the, our future wife, and the things that, you know, she enjoyed to do, I thought I would prove myself to be awesome and take her to dance lessons. So we went to these dance lessons, and the instructor was telling us, how to do these dance moves, um, and I was watching, I was observing, I was seeing the information, I was consuming it, and then afterwards, I was like, I got this, no problem. So I go, and I was like, skip all the kitty stuff, you know, I'm going to go straight to the dance moves, I'm going to sweep Brooke off of her feet, and I'm going to dance, and what ended up happening, her feet were involved, but it was from me stepping on them, and it ended up causing this fight, not because she was mad, she's so patient, but because I am so prideful, and I wanted to get it. But I soon found out that the transferring, the knowing of information, and then actually putting that information into practice were completely different things. That was not a fun experience. So it definitely was a learning experience. Another thing that uh, Tim Elmore talks about is the time span of adolescence, where it used to be, you know, you enter into adolescence at 12 or 13, you're becoming a teenager, and then you exit from 18 to 21 when you're leaving the house to go to college or to get a job. But now it's kind of this extended period where it's starting as early as 8 years old and lasting into the late 20s, even the early 30s. And so it's no longer a doorway into adulthood, but it's kind of this extended season of life with a lot more freedom but lack of responsibility. And a recent study was done, and it showed that the average college student is in touch with their parent 11 times per day. And out of those college students, 80% of them plan to return home after they graduate. And I'm not talking about to their hometown. I'm talking about in the home with their moms and dads. 80% are expecting to do that so based on the survey. <laughs> it's coming back. 
So we've got this kind of extended season of life, like I said before, um, with freedoms, but not a lot of responsibility. And an interesting quote found from Alan and Alan says, generations ago, 14-year-olds used to drive. 17-year-olds led armies. And even average teens contributed to labor and income that helped keep their families afloat. While facing problems, those teens displayed adult-like maturity far more quickly than today's, who are remarkably well-kept, but cut off from most of the responsibility, challenge, and growth producing feedback of the adult world. And Tim Elmore kind of accredits this, too. Because more was expected of them, they stepped up and were able to um, meet the appropriate responsibilities for the family. Um, But one thing I can say is this artificial maturity that we're seeing in so many is not their fault. We can't blame it on them. It's, it's a culture issue. It's our fault. And as a church, we have to commit um, to developing more authentically mature adults because they have the capability to do amazing things for the power of God, for the kingdom of God. Yeah, we realize either, these are very blanket statements. These are general you know, observations. Most of them Tim Elmore's, so just put all the blame on him. But uh, you know, you might be sitting here and you might see it played out. You might be agreeing with some of the things that you've seen. Um, but one thing that, that we're sure of, Brooke and I, um, is that we believe in this generation to do great things for the kingdom of God. We wouldn't be where we are. We wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we didn't believe in the next generation. Um, and it's so cool to, to be able to, to maybe just have a small part in building them into that authentic maturity. You know, and, and I have actually been called into ministry since I was in sixth grade. Before I was even a youth, I, I felt a call to youth ministry, and it kind of happened as my peers were coming to me, and they were asking me questions, they were, they were looking for encouragement, I was praying with my peers at a young age, and, and throughout my life, God was continuing to develop that and put me in a situation where I was helping do youth ministry as a youth. Um, and two of the things that, that really have, have affected me um, into building up generations of righteousness uh, were a couple of verses that really shaped. And the first one was 2 Timothy 2 2. It says that the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men that they may be able to teach others. And the second was Psalm 71 17 and 18. It says, Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds, even when I am old and gray, which I'm getting a little gray, please do not. Um, forsake me, my God, until I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. And I, I realize that my ministry is, is nothing if it's not reproducible, if it's not pouring in to the next generation so that they can be able to teach others and pour into the generation after them. And God knew exactly what he was doing by putting Wade and I together because we were quickly able to identify that our passion, that our heart for students and raising generations of righteousness went hand in hand. And I personally have experienced firsthand um, what it is to be impacted by a youth ministry. Um, I come from a family where Christ was definitely not the priority. Following him was not a priority. And so my faith was predominantly developed within the church, specifically a youth group. And at an early age like Wade, the Lord started to instill in me this desire, this heart to build up generations um, of righteousness. But not only that, to restore faith within the family and within the home. And so whether we are working with students or whether I'm working with the Mother's Day Out program, 
my heart is to instill just a biblical worldview in, in young people in hopes that it would transfer and develop into strong families and impact many. Yeah, that biblical worldview is not isolated to just us or those in ministry. Um, really, you understand that Scripture is a call for all of us. And that's the next point. Um, it is a call from Scripture um, for us to build up generations of righteousness. And we see this, this call because we know Scripture is our ultimate authority. Um, it declares God's purposes and promises to his people. And in crazy fashion, God decides to use us, people, to carry out his plans and his purposes on earth. And building up generations of righteousness has been from the very beginning. And we see it in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham as God calls Abraham and his family out of the land of their ancestors to an unknown land. And this is what he says. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And for whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So you see this plan that God laid out for Abraham, not to just go to this land, build a house, and minister to those in his neighborhood. No, but through his family, that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. So we see that through Father Abraham and many sons, many sons and Father Abraham. Sing with me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that, that literally every family on earth would be blessed by Abraham and his family. And if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And if you were here last week, Eric actually read this particular passage to the families right before family dedication. And this passage has really been on weight in, in my heart because we're expecting. And so we're trying to learn what does this passage actually mean? What is it telling us? And, and how are we going to implement this in our home? So we're going to unpack it, and we're going to start with verse 4. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And to the people of Israel, this particular passage was called the Shema. It was actually the central confession of their faith. And for we believers, um, we call this one of the greatest commandments. Because in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus states that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a pivotal passage for our faith. And if you look back at verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that seems pretty self-explanatory. The Lord is one. He is our God. But if we take a look back at what was happening in the culture at this time, there was a whole lot of confusion on who God was. There was polytheism, where people worshipped multiple gods. There was henotheism, where people might have chosen to worship one god, but they didn't deny the existence of other gods. And there was also idolatry. We see throughout Scripture that the Israelites even were building false idols and worshiping golden calves. And this same confusion that existed then still exists today. 
Um, we have people worshiping multiple gods. We have multiple religions. And we also have idolatry. Even amongst believers, we have idolatry. It could be money. It could be possessions. And I know for me personally, it sometimes can be my agenda or my schedule being put over um, my relationship with the Lord. So basically, this verse is confirming that God, that Yahweh, is the one true God, the one that deserves our complete devotion. And if you look through uh, verses 5 and 6, this is the part that's really familiar to us, where it tells us how we are to devote ourselves to God, to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And in our culture, heart often means our feelings and our emotions. Sometimes we say, well, my head tells me I shouldn't do this, but my heart's telling me I definitely should do this. Listen to your heart when it's calling. Okay, thank you. That was great. That's exactly how our culture is, and he always has a song for everything. <laughs> but heart in the, in the Hebrew actually is referring to our mind and our intellect, our rationale. And then when it says with all of our soul, it's referring to our will and our being and our desires. And then strength is the actual physical aspect. So when we see love with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, it's leaving no room at all for half-hearted worship. It's talking about our entire being, our entire devotion, kind of like that within a marriage covenant, when you devote yourself to your husband or to your wife. Then if we move on to verses 7 through 9, we see that this isn't a faith that we keep to ourselves. It's not something that's personal that we hold in, but it's something that we must share with others. And it says that it starts with the family. It says, impress them on your children. And it specifically tells us how we can do this and when we can do this. And the how is impress, which some of your translations might say teach. That's what that means there. Teach it. Talk about it. It says tie them as symbols. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames. What that's referring to is actually meditating on it. Okay? So we should talk about it. We should teach it. We should meditate on it with our children, with our families. And when should we do this? It's clear. It says when we sit at home, when we walk along the road, when we lie down, and when we get up. It's showing this constant talking of, teaching of, meditating on the things of God. It's not just on a Sunday morning. It's not just on a daily basis, but it's consistently throughout the day. And one of my favorite words in the Bible is the word will. And I think a lot of us can attest to either someone making a promise to us and not following through that promise, or we maybe have made a promise to someone else and failed to follow through. But I'm confident and I know that when my God says he will do something, that he's going to fulfill that promise. So whenever I see it in Scripture, I get really excited. And in Proverbs 22.6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So we've got this promise in Scripture that if we're doing this, if we're doing what this passage in Deuteronomy tells us to do, then we will have children who are going in the way that they should go. And it's very important that we understand this word train here. It's talking about teaching through practice and instruction over time. Again, this consistent, constant teaching of the Word of God. And when we do this, it becomes this cyclical effect because if our children become people who don't stray from the Lord, then they're going to raise their children um, to not stray from the Lord. And we see an example of this in Psalm 145.4 when it says, One generation commends your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. So you might be sitting here and you're like, well, they're talking about parents and they're talking about families and, and maybe you're young and you're single and you don't have kids yet. 
Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you say, I have raised my kids. I have launched them successfully out of the house. I have done my part. Now it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show, right? Um, Well, we see another call in Scripture, and it's actually a privilege that I think is throughout all generations, through all ages, through every walk of life. Um, And we see this in, in Titus 2. You see that older women should urge the younger women, and older men should encourage the younger men. So, so we see this playing out through all generations. And, the, and the, the verse that I mentioned earlier in Psalm 71, that even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, until I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. So we see that this is every, this is a church-wide responsibility. There's a church-wide call to pour into the next generation and really transfer your faith to them. Yeah, so as a church and within the family, We've got to commit to answering the call to raising up generations of righteousness. And oftentimes what happens is when we're presented with a crisis or a problem, we're going to do one of two things. We're either going to be the person that comes up with six ways that we can solve the problem and fix it, have the solution, or we're going to be the person that complains about the problem and blames it on everybody else but comes up with no solution. And oftentimes what happens is we push prayer to the side and we consider it as this passive kind of last resort. We're desperate, so why don't we try to pray? But in actuality, it should be our first response. Our first step in answering the call is to pray on behalf of this generation and generations to come. And when we start to pray, when we start to ask God, um, he's going to reveal to us his heart for them and show us our role and our responsibility in that. And we have to depend on him. We can't do it on our own. We can't come up with a solution evident in the crisis in the first place. Um, But we can be reminded that in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, it says that he is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, and to him be the glory throughout all generations. So we see that, yeah, prayer is a a very vital part. It's the first response that we should have so God can develop this call into into our lives and 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 really a brokenness for the next generation to see them be built up. The second thing is, is to intentionally transfer that faith from one generation to the next. So you have this call to transfer it. And, and I'm not talking about transferring morals or good values or tips for the next generation, but actually faith, gospel-centered, biblical, um, you know, mystery-indwelling faith that is going to last throughout a- each generation. And the first way that we do that is, is through modeling it. Um, you know, the old adage, um, you know, actions speak louder than words, reigns to be so true um, in our homes. Um, because kids and students, they pick up on what you do um, more so than what you say. Um, and in James 1, we're reminded that, that we're not only supposed to be hearers of the word, but to do what it says. And in 1 John 3, it says, Do not love with only words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So this living out our faith, this, this modeling to the next generation what faith and love and, and prayer looks like, is so important with our actions. Uh, it reminds me of, of a, uh, a story that I heard about a Japanese college student who came over here from Japan to, to go to college. And uh, one of the things that she was so looking forward to was to, to look inside of a, a, a Christian home. And so she got her opportunity when her friend invited her to, to Christmas break, to spend Christmas break with her, with her family. So this Japanese girl goes to this home, and she spends all of the holidays with her, um, goes to church with them, does all the traditions. Um, and at the end, as she was leaving, the, the host, the mom, 
says, hey, so what did you think about our, um, our, our family? What did you think about our home? And the Japanese girl looks at her and she says, you know, it was great. I, I loved have, you, know, you having me. You were very hospitable. Um, but there was one thing that I was missing. I went to church with you and I saw you worship God there and I saw you pray together. But at home, I didn't see any of that. In, Jap- in Japan, we have a, a God altar where we in our homes worship God right there. We pray to God right there. Do you guys worship God in your homes? And this conviction came over the host, this, this girl and her mom, and, and she realized that throughout the holidays, they, they had done nothing to show that they were a Christian home. They hadn't prayed together. They hadn't read the, the story of Jesus. Um, so it wasn't really modeled in the home. And while modeling is a type of communication that transfers faith, we also do have to consider actual verbal communication. In our technology-rich culture right now, we have young people who communicate more than ever before in history, whether they're texting or tweeting or sending Facebook messages. But often when it comes time for a face-to-face conversation or a basic introduction to a new person, um, speaking with authority, and especially talking about their faith, there becomes this disconnect. And if we want this generation to be able to communicate their faith well, then we have to be communicating our faith well to them. We have to be talking about the things that excite us in Scripture, things that we're praying for, things that we're learning, things that we've learned through mistakes, questions that we have. Um, All of these things help them to develop their faith. And then also in healthy communication, it's good to understand another person's perspective. So asking them questions about what they believe and giving them the opportunity to actually articulate that faith. And then you can kind of see where they are and build on that. And if these types of conversations aren't being transferred um, from the home uh, or in the home from the church, then it's less likely to happen in other arenas of their life. Yeah, that's one of the, my biggest struggles is, as a youth pastor. It's, it's the thing that I've constantly had to work on. Um, is the art of asking good questions. Uh, because every spiritual gifts inventory that I take, everything that I do, um, I always get teaching as one of my, my things, which is actually the third thing to transfer your faith. So teaching is, is one of those things. When a student comes up to me, it becomes my default. They ask me a question or they ask for advice, and I just want to spin this awesome metaphor. I want to give this beautiful word picture and drop a truth bomb in their lap and say, you're welcome, you have been taught. But that is not always the best response. And I remember the first time that I witnessed Brooke in a small group session, and this girl came up to her and she asked her a question. And this girl was completely disillusioned. She, was, she, was, she did not know the first thing about the subject that she was asking Brooke about. And my jaw dropped because Brooke started asking her pointed questions that eventually, at the end of this conversation, this girl understood the original question. And it it meant so much more to her, and it stuck because it was self-discovery. She had gotten there through Brooke's questioning, through Brooke kind of guiding her through pointed questions. So there is that aspect of teaching through questions. But we also see the call in Scripture to teach with our words, to actually, you know, drop a truth bomb every once in a while. Uh, Romans chapter 10 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how can they call who they have not believed? And how can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone teaching them? And how can someone teach unless they are sent? So we have this call to teach our faith to the next generation. So consider yourself today 
through Scripture and the authority given through it being sent out to teach the next generation. Albert Einstein once said that learning is experience and everything else is just information. And just like we mentioned previously, if we want to develop authentically mature adults, we've got to provide them with acquaintance with information, but also life application and life experiences. And I think that Grace Point does an excellent job of um, helping us provide life experiences um, for our faith. And we have um, service projects in the community. We have global adventures. Um, we give to things larger than ourselves, whether that be missions or helping to stop slave trafficking. Um, we have opportunities to worship, whether that be through prayer, through song, through the teaching of God's word. But what happens if this isn't transferred into the home, a lot of times young people see life and church as two completely separate entities. And we want them to see faith as life. Um, it goes hand in hand. And the fun thing about this is when we do implement this in the family, it can look different in different families. We get to set our own traditions. And I've actually talked with several families who have some neat traditions within this church. And one of them in particular um, has felt a call in their life to adopt a child. And they already have children of their own, and they're, they're wanting to adopt one as well. And so um, what they did was they created an adoption jar. And before they decide to go out to ice cream together, before they decide to go on a family vacation, they weigh the options and say, is this worth the money that we're going to spend, or do we want to put this money in our adoption jar? So as a family, they're saving up for something that God has called them to do. And something that Wade and I are um, implementing in our home is when we got married, we made this jar up here. This is called a manna jar. And if you guys remember from Exodus, the Lord provided manna for the Israelites when they were escaping Egypt. And he told them, you know, store this in a jar so that generations after you can see how I've provided for you. And so what we do is we write down answered prayers that the Lord has um, revealed himself to us. And we're hoping to pass that down to our future children so that they can see how God has provided for their family. Yeah, and she mentioned mission trips earlier. And, and uh, man, that's such a great way for families to grow together and for that to provide life experiences. Um, I always say before every mission trip that we go on that those who sweat together stick together. Um, and that is a very <laughs> literal thing, um, but it's also a spiritual thing. And I think whenever we think about the gospel, when we think about being joined together and serving our communities, that when we go and do these hard things, we actually do stick together. It brings us closer. Um, and don't get too close because you will actually stick together. Um, but, you know, there's all kinds of different things. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that I think we can all do is be a little bit more intentional about our dinner table, about the times that we're all together as a family. Um, there's a family that, that I heard about, and they, uh, they share every night. Everybody goes around, and uh, sorry for my language, but they share the happy and the crappy. And so each night, everybody shares a happy, and they praise you know, God for what he's doing and the blessing that they poured out. And then they share the crappy, and they talk about, okay, how can we pray for you? How can we pray for this situation? And what is some scripture that applies to that crappy situation in your life. And uh, you might want to choose different words, but it just rhymes and it works. Um, but, you know, bringing back that, that intentional conversation to our dinner tables. And we realize that, you know, not every family uh, is, is going to do the same things. And that's a great thing. God is so creative and, and has blessed families with creativity. Um, but we did want to provide uh, a list. And back in the back, 
there's this orange sheet. There's one, there's some at the student table, and there's some at that little prayer book table. Um, and this is just a resource list to get families started. Um, it has books, it has websites, devotionals, um, and, and blogs that you can go and get ideas on how to instill faith in your family. Um, so that's just a little resource to get you started. Make sure you pick up one of those. Um, one per family, please.